You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. And today, I just want to quickly introduce and get talking about this book. But author Michelle Nyhouse, who wrote the book Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. This is a fascinating, fascinating book about many conservation heroes. So you're definitely going to want to listen to this interview. But Michelle, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks so much, Chris. No, it's yeah. This is fascinating. It, it, this is going to be a fun one, and just to just to jump off with this, can you tell our listeners your background? You know, you have a fascinating career, but how you know talk about your education? I guess where you grew up and how you really started to get interested in the natural world, animal conservation, something you know, things like that. Sure. Um, Well, I went to college in the Pacific Northwest and I studied biology. I was always interested in writing and I was somewhat interested in biology, but but, uh, I didn't see myself as a scientist. In fact, I don't think I ever really saw myself as having a a future as a researcher, even when I was majoring in biology. I, I was just very interested in it, and uh, I think at the back of my mind, I thought, well, if I study biology, then I'll have something to write about, and which turned out to be not far off the mark. <laughs> I, uh, mm-hmm. I supported myself after college uh, by working as a field tech on wildlife research projects in the uh, desert southwest in the U.S., and that gave me an up-close look not only at a lot of cool animals and plants and landscapes, but also at some of the really often vicious politics around threatened and endangered species and around species in general. And once I became a journalist and started writing about conservation issues and uh, climate change, I was always interested in the history of conservation because I think beginning with the that experience of watching these these tussles over endangered species and realizing that we were still arguing over these really basic questions about how do we save a species? Why should we? Who has responsibility for that? I I always kind of wanted to know, well, what if people certainly must have figured these things out in the past or at least proposed Mm -hmm. answers to them? So that was the beginning of my interest in, in history. Well, that that's what this book is. It, it, It really is a history of, Modern conservation, I guess you would say, the last hundred years, right? Yeah, it starts when uh, around the time when people first 
really grasp the idea that humans could drive species extinct, uh, you know, not just on a, on a local level on remote islands, but that they could drive these physically large, very abundant species to extinction uh, right in their backyards. And, and that was relatively recently, actually, that wasn't until the late 1800s that that I would say, you know, society, human society as a whole really, really got that idea. It, yeah, it, 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 we, the book is fascinating. And it's like, we've told some of those stories over the years in some of our podcasts, but you really bring a lot of light to one thing that you talk about, I guess we'll jump into it in a minute, you know, uh, about the political part of it. But I'm curious, because especially for our younger listeners, you had a background in biology, a, a, a bachelor's degree in biology. And then you jump into being a journalist. <laughs> so I, I guess you, you've explained, you know, your focus of your journalistic career. I guess if you can expand on that a little bit more, because I'm curious as a scientist, because it, it has taken me many years to really hone my craft in writing. Mm -hmm. So going from a scientific career to a journalism career, that bridge, how did that come about? And then what's the main focus of what you've been writing about? Sure. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> the, the transition was in some ways abrupt, but in other ways has taken a lifetime. I, uh, as I said, I was working a string of temporary jobs on wildlife research projects. I, I learned a lot, but as I mentioned, really never saw myself as a researcher, as a professional researcher. I think because I just am always more of a generalist, have always been more of a generalist than a specialist. I've always been interested in the connections between things, or I guess seen in a more pessimistic way, you could say I want to know a, a little bit about a lot of things <laughs> rather than a mm -hmm. lot about one thing. And uh, so I, uh, this is going back a long time now, that in 1998, I got a internship at a publication called High Country News, which uh, hopefully your listeners will know about or can find out about. It covers conservation issues, public lands issues, uh, community issues in the Western U.S., and it's still going strong. It's just celebrated its half-century birthday, and they still have a great internship and fellowship program. So I, I learned on the job, which a lot of journalists still do. You can certainly go to go to journalism school and that can be advisable because you don't have to make as many of your mistakes in public. <laughs> but, mm -hmm. uh, but the advantage of making mistakes in public is that you learn very quickly not to repeat them. And <laughs> I, uh, so I was a, a reporter and a staff editor there for several years. And then I went freelance and became a magazine writer writing long form stories about climate change and, and conservation. And I, I, started writing about science because that was what I knew. And, uh, you know, that was what I, I knew a little bit more about than some of my colleagues, which is often how you, you fall into a beat as a journalist. Uh, you know, the person who, who has the, has a basic grasp of the concept is the one of the concepts is the one who ends up with the job. So mm -hmm. I, uh, now there is a much more, I think, established path to becoming a science writer or a science journalist. There are specialized graduate programs uh, at several universities in the U.S. and I'm sure elsewhere. But at the time, it was much more of a DIY uh, education, both right, in journalism right, right, right. in general yeah. and in, in science journalism and science communication. Yeah, and it, it, the, the landscape has changed so much in the last 10 years. Very much so. 
Now, where has your writing appeared? I know I've read your bio, but for our listeners, if if just they know the kind of the breadth of your background. Sure. Uh, well, I as I said, I, I wrote for High Country News, which is a regional publication for many, many years, and I still write for them occasionally and and am part of the organization. And I've done magazine work for publications like National Geographic and the New York Times Magazine. And for the last few years, I've been a project editor at The Atlantic. So I edit a series of science features that's been running for quite a while now. And I, I also write for them from time to time as well. It's fascinating, Michelle. Now, one thing I, I was curious about, you know, going from being a young biologist into journalism, is there anything you've been noticing trends, um, things going on about the natural world or topics that you have really been fascinated with as you've, have you been writing, you know, the last few years? Well, I will say one thing that I've learned from journalism and as a journalist is that everything is more complicated than it seems. <laughs> and mm. that is probably, scientists probably learn that as well. I, I feel like journalism is an opportunity to constantly question your own assumptions because mm. you are, you know, of course, we as journalists have our own opinions and our own preconceptions, uh, but we're trained to set those aside as much as possible and, and, you know, ask people to tell us as frankly as they can what they're, what they're thinking. And so, so to be challenged that way, I think has really impressed on me how complicated every problem is, and especially every conservation problem, how few blanket solutions there are, and how rarely we're going to get a simple answer to anything. And I think that's, that in some ways that's daunting, but in other ways, it, uh, I think it's helpful to, to stop looking for the easy answer, to stop looking for the, the silver bullet, the proverbial silver bullet, and, and just mm -hmm. accept that, uh, these are some of the most difficult questions we're dealing with as a human community and the answers are not going to be easy. No, no, it is. It is. It is. Conservation is very complex and many moving pieces. And that's what's this book, you know, start jumping into it is so fascinating because it doesn't seem like the challenges have really changed in the modern age. Um, before we get there, I guess, again, the book is called Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Could you just give the listeners just a brief overview of what the book's about? Sure. Yeah. Uh, Beloved Beast is a history of the modern conservation movement, as I call it. I, I wanted to differentiate between between the modern conservation movement and the kind of conservation that people have, of course, always practiced throughout history, which is uh, the, the practice of, for instance, restraining uh, a community's hunting uh, for one season so that there are enough animals to provide plenty of food to the community for the next season. Um, but the modern conservation movement is a more global, larger scale effort to preserve species that may or may not be useful to humans uh, and species that people may or may not live next door to. Uh, and that effort started about 150 years ago, as I said, in the late 1800s. And I, I traced the movement from then to now, uh, using certain pivotal people, I couldn't have, I couldn't hope to capture 
the entire history of conservation right, in right. a manageable yeah, yeah. sized book, but I hoped to capture at least some of its complexity, speaking of complexity, by telling the stories of individual people who I felt represented some of the most important turning points in the movement and showing how those people and and the concepts that they represented or supported fit together and have turned into a tradition over time. So we, you know, interview a lot of conservation experts in the last three years and we call them conservation heroes and each of them are that are out there. I mean, we, even you doing this book, we call you a conservation hero because you are doing your part. You're educating the masses. This book is all about some of the biggest conservation heroes in the last 150 years. So what really drove you to do the re because it's very well researched, very detailed, reads beautifully. It, it is not textbook reading by any stretch. It is a novel. The stories are compelling, but these are some of the, the most earliest conservation heroes in the, you know, in the modern movement. So I guess my question is what really drove you to do all the hard work to write this book? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for the kind words. First of all, uh, when you finish a book, project. I think probably any author who finishes a book project wonders if it's still written in an intelligible language. And it's a pleasant mm -hmm. surprise to find out, oh, good, it makes sense to someone other than myself. Uh, what drove me was that these are questions that have been bothering me for a long time. Uh, things that, well, not so much questions as, as I have been wanting to make some kind of coherent sense out of the development of the conservation movement for a long time. And, and you know, I, I know I'm not, certainly not the first person to try to do so, and I won't be the last, uh, hopefully, anyway. Uh, and I, I know I certainly, I, I, I'm not pretending to even try to answer all the questions that are out there about conservation, but I just, I had this sense of, as I continue to report on conservation, I had this sense that we kept talking about these same very basic questions over and over again in, in every argument. And I, I felt that certainly there must have been some general progress in the conservation movement. Uh, not that it has resolved issues, but that it has proposed answers to big questions and then built on those answers. Um, I, I felt, I knew that there was that progress because the conservation movement has had some big successes. And I wanted to piece that story together, um, partly because I kept feeling like when I was writing magazine articles, I would always try to shove in a big chunk of history and my editor would always take it out <laughs> saying, no, that's boring. And, um, and, you know, I would have to agree that is boring uh, <laughs> mm -hmm, <laughs> to read mm -hmm. in, in the middle of a, a story that takes place in the present day. But then I would think, well, but the broad historical story is not at all boring. It's a very high stakes story. And there have been some great successes and great failures. And maybe there's a way to tell that if I have some more space, maybe I can tell, I can do some more justice to that story. Well, it just seems like some of the challenges these, all the people in your book covered are, are very similar to today. You know, that not a lot has changed. True. I mean, we're still, they, they, we have learned a lot. I mean, I, I think yeah. we've had successes and, and definitely there has been 
an arc of progress in the conservation movement, but at the same time, some of the threats, many of the threats that species are facing are still the same, and many of the questions that the conservation movement are is struggling with are still the same. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I want to jump to this question because, you know, reading, especially in the beginning, the intro and stuff, you, you talk about in conservation, the news we see, and it, and it is true. And a few weeks ago, I kind of did a summed up a, a podcast on all of the issues we're facing, like the Amazon is almost at the tipping point and, and we're, we're almost going to lose it completely, that complete rainforest ecosystem. Mm. So it seems in the news, like it bleeds, it leads. It's it's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy. Is, in your opinion, you know, in your journalistic career, is that doing a disservice to conservation? Or do we need to tell more of like the stories in your book where they are optimistic, successful conservation stories? Well, it's tough, right? Because I think just as conservationists feel that they have to deal with the emergencies, deal with the oncoming extinctions, and hopefully ward them off, I think journalists also feel a sense of, well, they feel a sense, they they have a, a inborn desire probably to tell the most dramatic story uh, that they can, and but also a sense of duty of wanting to tell the most important, most pressing story that they can. And I, I recognize that and I sympathize with that, but I do feel like in journalism, we have to find, uh, we, we can't let onrushing extinction be the only news peg that we use in conservation. Um, I, I think it's, it, we so often default to that and there are reasons for it, but we can't keep doing that because not only because I think people get numb to those stories. I mean, you can right. practically write a Mad Libs about, yeah, uh, yep, yep. you know, very rare rainforest species about to go extinct if such and such is not stopped, which it likely won't be. You know, the, <laughs> people mm-hmm. get callous to those and numb to them. And, and there are very few, I think, points at which people can productively engage with those crises. So it just becomes a, a sort of a dull drumbeat that people are hearing. Uh, I So I'm not going to say stop covering those stories because they, they are important, but I think we have to turn at least some of our attention to efforts to protect species that are not in crisis. Uh, because if we don't figure out how to do that, if we don't figure out the dramatic stories to tell on that front, we're just going to be writing about more oncoming extinctions forever. <laughs> right. Uh, we, we need to do a little bit as journalists, we need to, to do a little bit of preventive journalism. No, it, it is. And we even feel it too, that, you know, we can't just be terrible story. This species going extinct, this species going extinct. And, and the one, the one that I'm going to lead you in here in a second, about talking about the American bison. I mean, talk about it, an amazing story a recovery that is, that is going well. But before we get there, I, mm. it, it, this kind of set this up because, you know, reading this, this quote in your book really stood out to me and I was like, wow. So I just kind of wanted to pick your brain about it, but you wrote, and I'll quote you, the story of modern species conservation is full of people who did the wrong things for the right reasons and the right things for the wrong reasons. 
And, you know, we, we do mention savior complex, you know, going in and, oh, you must do this to save this species. And the locals are like, what, who are you? And what are you telling me to do? <laughs> yeah. Right. So if you could kind of explain what you meant by that quote, cause it is, it, it's powerful. It's very powerful. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I knew that there were some dark threads in the history of conservation before I started this project and, and I always wanted or, or knew that I wanted to acknowledge the cases of racism and colonialism in the history of conservation. But the more I researched the history of the movement, the more I realized that these instances, and I, I certainly don't want to imply that the practice of conservation is racist or colonialist, mm -hmm. uh, you know, conservation is something we all have to do in the interest of our own survival but and i don't want to imply that that all conservationists are are prejudiced in any way but in every generation there are a few conservationists who have espoused racist views have espoused very colonialist views and who in other ways have been blind to what I think of as the complexity of human beings. They've tended to take an overly biological view of humans and and mm. made assumptions that can be pretty pernicious or at least counterproductive in that they exclude a lot of people from the practice of conservation by assuming that people can do, do no good for the, for the for other species. And so I at the same time, even though that is a reality in the history of conservation, some of these people, despite their extreme short-sightedness, have done things that we're very grateful to them for today. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So it's, and and you mentioned the American bison, that the one of the people who was primarily responsible for saving the American bison from extinction uh, did so for reasons that we would probably consider the quote unquote wrong reasons today. And, and yet because he did that, we can continue his work and continue to restore bison to the prairie in a way that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Well, that's pretty, it leads me right into it. So you're talking about William Hornaday or yes. also Teddy Roosevelt yes. just thrown in there. All of yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. these guys, the the founding fathers, if you want to call them that, of the conservation move of the modern conservation movement, and the, and in a sense, they really were. Uh, they were moved by the shocking decline of the bison on the pra on the American prairie, and they took it upon themselves to try to save the bison from near extinction, and then. Once that wasn't possible to raise some bison on the the grounds of the Bronx Zoo, what are now the grounds of mm -hmm. the Bronx Zoo, and and reintroduce them to the prairie, and you know they did that. It showed, I think, incredible foresight because they did that at a time when you know, as I talked about earlier, people didn't even really get that it was this was possible. There were so many bison not too many decades before, 
and all of a sudden they were going to be gone forever. Like it was almost incomprehensible. And and then once people grasped that it was possible, a lot of people said, oh, well, it's just inevitable. It's the price of progress. So I think we owe these guys a lot for continuing to insist, no, this is this is possible, but it's not inevitable and we can do something about it. But the the trouble <laughs> we get into uh, with the story is that their reasons, as I kind of in a in a tongue in cheek way say say they did the right thing, but they did it for the wrong reasons. They they weren't really seeing the bison for for what it you know as a bison. They were seeing it right. as a, I'm sure they appreciated its beauty and its majesty, but they were seeing it as a symbol of national pride. Some of them really saw it as a as an animal that could help strengthen white masculinity, which was seen mm-hmm. as kind of under threat by industrialization at the time. People, you know, young men were thought to be kind of wilting away in offices and and, right, and right. in need of a dose of the, you know, a strengthening dose of the frontier. And uh, William Hornaday in particular was quite blind to the plight of the people who were most impacted by the decline of the bison, namely the Native Americans and First Nations who were just devastated culturally and economically in in every practical way way imaginable by the the crash in the bison population. And, And he even continued to insist that Native Americans were primarily responsible for the slaughter, even though there was right. a lot of contemporary evidence to the contrary. So, so he had a lot of blind spots, a lot of really um, pernicious ideas. But as I said, at the same time, he left us a whole bunch of bison. And, and I think the happy irony in his story and what I really love about it is that because he reestablished those herds, there has that those herds have enabled the emergence of a tribally led continent wide effort to restore the bison in a more ecological way to the prairie ecosystem. I mean, Hornaday basically just plunked the bison out on the prairie and (laughs) left them to graze like a bunch of cows. And he didn't Mm -hmm. know what, you know, the science of ecology was pretty young. He didn't, he didn't know that the bison were this keystone species in the prairie. And, and we know that now. And so Mm -hmm. Tribes are uh, are building their own herds, often with hornaday bison. They're building their own herds on tribal land, and you know these tribes, these herds, excuse me, are re-entering the ecosystem in the sense that some of them are regaining their old migration patterns, and they're also uh, restoring cultural traditions in many ways. I mean, the bison are remembered so vividly through stories um, in so many Native American communities, but many of these communities haven't lived near bison for generations. And so it's quite a moving experience uh, for many of these community leaders to see living bison, you know, come back to their neighborhoods. And to me, it's one of the most exciting things happening in conservation today because it's a species that's not in crisis um, and it's a species that is helping to restore both an ecosystem and um, some cultural connections that have been weakened over time and and are you know are still present, but 
but are are just rebounding with the return of of this species. It, it it is a fascinating story and fascinating read. And I'm sitting here listening to you, and I'm like, anybody that wants, a, especially a career in conservation, needs to read this book because you know you do go back and it you know again the modern conservation movement and and his story, the politics and stuff that we would find horrifying today, but it's probably still going on around the world in some parts, you know, with the the decline of the bison to, you know, I guess attack native Americans in, in, in another way. And in the book, you quoted statistics, like a million bison a year were killed in the 1870s, mm-hmm. like just decimated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. That's a fascinating, that, that's kind of the, one of the opening stories, but some of these others are just, people I haven't heard of. So that's why it's just, it was exciting to read this book, but Rosaline edge, Mm -hmm. what did you learn from covering her? (laughs) Uh, Well, Rosalie edge is a delightful person who, though Mm -hmm. I never had the chance to meet her in life, feel like I know pretty well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just really loved learning her life story. She was a born into a wealthy family in Manhattan, uh, didn't have a lot of interest in conservation for, you know, until until her middle age, really. Uh, she she lived abroad with her husband, uh, and and she was quite active in the suffrage movement. Um, helped women achieve the right to vote in New York State and then then nationwide. And after the kind of sudden breakup of her marriage she was she was you know mourning this personal loss and and she started looking at the birds in Manhattan um, of which you know many many people may know but many people may not that that there are lots of migratory birds that pass through Manhattan and many of them stop over in Central Park which is this you know big nice big piece of green in the middle of the city and and she started uh, birding there getting to know the, the species and also getting to know the birders who are very devoted, still are very devoted to uh, walking around the park and seeing who's showing up and what species are, are coming and going from the park. And she learned from these birders that the Audubon Society had gotten pretty complacent about which birds it was going to protect. It was, I think, in part because, because the conservation movement had been started by sportsmen and was still dominated by sportsmen, it uh, it really was putting most of its energy into preserving birds that people like to hunt. Um, and then birds that people generally agreed were beautiful uh, and valuable for that reason. It wasn't that interested in hawks and eagles and birds of prey. A lot of sportsmen considered them pests. Uh, they considered them a threat to to the birds they like to hunt, and and they just kind of were snobby about them. They thought, oh, they're mm-hmm. scavengers. You know, they eat dead stuff. We don't, we don't. That's not the majestic right. kind of species yeah. that we really want to protect. Uh, right, right. So Rosalie Edge, you know, marched into a, a annual meeting of the Audubon Society and said, well, what the heck? You know, what <laughs> what are you guys thinking? Uh, you should be protecting all species. If this is this is a conservation movement, not it's not about just protecting the species you like. And she was very smart. She didn't have, uh, uh, she had never studied science herself, but she had a way of, of finding 
very effective, generous mentors, and she learned a lot about ecology and was was quite ahead of her time in in some of the statements she made and and was very explicit. You know, we have to protect all of these species because they're part of a living chain. And so she made herself enough of a pain of, in the neck <laughs> for the yeah. Audubon Society and, and right, right. mustered enough support that they they really changed their tune. And I think she, you know, both both in, in what she specifically did, but but also she symbolizes a larger turn in the conservation movement around that time where where its its sensibilities expanded, so to speak, to include not just these charismatic, huntable game animals, but all species, even though ecology was fairly young, people were getting the sense of, okay, this is not just about what we like. This is about something more. Right. And this, again, was a fascinating story because you, you talk about the foundation of the Audubon Society. You really highlight the destruction of birds, how humans have just devastated birds across the planet. I, I know I, I wrote to you and said, you know, I just know here in New Zealand, the Maori, uh, when they came in the 1500s, roughly uh, to New Zealand and they drove the moa, which was like larger than an ostrich to extinction, mm-hmm. which in turn caused the Haas eagle, which was the largest eagle in the world to extinction. All of these stories played out across as, you know, the British colonized the world and, and yeah, as humans moved. So yeah. I, I found it just a, a fascinating a fascinating part of the book. Yeah. You know, especially covering birds. I mean, birds are in such trouble now too. Yeah. And I mean, it happens for birds. It can happen so quickly. I'm sure as many of your listeners know, it happened, you know, these extinctions on islands have been happening mm-hmm. of bird species on islands have been happening for centuries as people have spread across the globe. And, um, and so, you know, I think birds have been central to the conservation movement almost from the beginning. Right. Yeah, it was. And, and then, I mean, in that story too, you were talking about the plume feathers and things they just didn't, you don't, you just didn't think about. <laughs> and again, it's still going on today. It still goes on today. Yeah. I got yeah. to look at a lot of funny looking hats for when I wrote about, uh, <laughs> when I wrote about the yeah. plume trade in the early 1900s where, where mm-hmm. feathered hats for women became very fashionable and, and there was kind of a, uh, a evolutionary race, I suppose you'd call it in fashion mm-hmm. to, to build higher and higher and higher hats, which of course was very destructive to birds. But mm-hmm. some of the photos are just wonderful of, of women wearing what look like wicker laundry hampers upside down yeah. on their heads and <laughs> you know, heads. topped with these gigantic feathers. And it's tragic, but also hel- darkly hilarious. <laughs> it's dark. Okay. So, uh, the next, again, I, I'd, I'd like to try to highlight all the people you covered or mm. most of them because it, each story was just, wow. So Aldo Leopold, what? why did you cover him? What, what specifically drew you to his story? <laughs> well, Aldo Leopold was one of the... Uh... One of the people I knew I needed to include in the book, uh, he, I'm sure most of your listeners have at least heard his name, um, if not read his work. He's the author of uh, a book of essays called A Sound County Almanac, which was really a, a, a classic text in the conservation movement in North America, if not the world. And he was a, a forester trained at Yale University who became more and more interested in ecology, kind of grew up alongside the science, 
he became a professor of wildlife ecology at the University of Wisconsin when there there really was was no job of its kind at the time. Uh, wildlife biology was not an established right. field, and and he established that field. And I think more more most memorably for us, he he wrote beautifully about science and ecology and perhaps most importantly about what he saw as the human role in the ecosystem. Um, and he, he had a more optimistic view of, of human capabilities than I think many conservationists did or do. He saw the destruction that humans do to the rest of life, but he, and he really despaired about it at times, but he also saw that there was really no way to accomplish conservation without figuring out how humans could be a constructive part of the ecosystems that they lived within. I mean, no matter how many parks and reserves you establish, you still have that problem <laughs> of needing to figure mm-hmm. out how people can live within at least some ecosystems on the planet and, right. and, and live within them sustainably. Uh, so his, his vision was old fashioned in a way, cause it was hearkening back to, you know, older practices, but also I think so prescient because we're still struggling with that today. And, and you can read, I mean, Leopold wasn't perfect. I do revere him. I have to admit, I was I was kind of afraid of discovering a dark side of Leopold as I did yeah, with yeah, as yeah, I yeah. did with so many other characters in the I book. Know, you know they, know, they said reprehensible things or what have you. Yeah. Uh, Leopold certainly wasn't perfect. He was a man of his time. Didn't couldn't didn't and couldn't foresee everything. But so much of his work is still so relevant, and his writing still really holds up and and is fun mm-hmm. to read. So I recommend it. Um, yeah. To people. Yeah, it was again a fascinating story. And then we jump to Julian Huxley, <laughs> whose grandfather was kind of famous, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So what what are what are his contributions and what did you learn about his story? Yeah, uh Julian Huxley was the grandson of Thomas Henry Huxley, whose nickname mm-hmm. Uh, during his life was uh, Darwin's bulldog because he was such a vociferous defender of Darwin's theory of natural Mm -hmm. selection. Darwin himself was kind of a shy guy, uh, but T.H. Huxley certainly was not and and sort of served as his uh, his PR man slash attack dog (laughs) and and probably had a lot to do with the success of Darwin's book and and the, the longevity of his theory. So Julian Huxley, his grandson, shared his grandfather's interest in the natural world, and and Julian was also happens happened to be the older brother of novelist Aldous Huxley. Uh, if you've heard of the book or read the book Brave New World, mm-hmm. um, so those brothers had a very fascinating lifelong correspondence about um, all the big ideas that filled their heads and and the very different ways that they viewed the world and and the future of the world. Uh, but Julian really was present in the conservation movement at a time when it was uniting as a global movement. And he founded the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, which still exists today and and, uh, Mm -hmm. publishes the Red List of Threatened Species, Mm -hmm. which is a global directory of of threatened and endangered species that we know about. It's, of course, not a complete list. So, um, and so Julian was present when the conservation movement went global um, which had, you know, was was done in in some ways that were beneficial to other species, and in some ways that were repeated a lot of colonial 
assumptions and behaviors that were quite destructive to other species and to humans. Um, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Well, it, yeah, it's again, fascinating, uh, history on that in the IUCN, which we, you know, we talk about all the time and how underfunded they are mm-hmm. because, you know, trying to document all these species in decline and they're really having a hard time doing it. Yeah. And it's amazing to think that there was that for a long time, we didn't have such a thing. Mm-mm, um, mm-mm. You know, it, it really got its start in the, you know, mid 20th century. And before that, it was what species were out there and what they needed was except at a local level, pretty much a matter of guesswork. Yeah. And, and I mean, we're discovering new species every day. There's probably a lot of species that have gone extinct that we never knew existed because of human activity. So yeah, amazing organization and history lesson on them. It was just great. Now, a few more of these, you know, let's see if we can cover them in the next 10 minutes or so. Rachel Carson, and, and you, you kind of jump into DDT and some of the other stuff that she did. Just a brief synopsis on, on her story. Yeah. Rachel Carson, I'm sure many people have heard of her. Uh, she was a, uh, she worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service in the U.S. and um, had an interest in science, some background in science. And she wrote the groundbreaking book, Silent Spring, which, uh, as many people know, put together a case against DDT uh, by pointing out all the the evidence that there was that DDT was having this really devastating systematic effect on wildlife and perhaps an effect on human health as well. And uh, a couple of things that that are memorable to me about Rachel Carson that some people may not know. The first is that a, a linchpin of her argument was uh, the eagle data that came from a wildlife sanctuary, a hawk sanctuary that Rosalie Edge, who we spoke about a little mm. bit earlier, the, the Audubon or anti-Audubon activist, the Audubon yeah, agitator, yeah. established in the 1930s. And I mean, to me, that's just such a powerful illustration of the value of long-term data that Rosalie Edge established this little sanctuary and suggested to the caretaker that he start writing down the numbers of birds that passed over every fall. And he kept doing that. And uh, 30 years later, Rachel Carson came along and said, I've heard that you've seen a decline in the numbers of eagles uh, at the sanctuary. And he said, well, yes, I have. And, and I know that it's unusual because I have all this other data from decades before showing that, you know, it's been pretty steady. Uh, so that was, you know, she referred to it as very significant in her book. And I, I, I just love that, that had it not been for Rosalie Edge uh, sort of, having the faith that this would be important in some way. She didn't know how, but she thought it might be important in the future. Had she not done that, Rachel Carson might've had a much weaker argument. And the other thing I like to remember about Rachel Carson is that while she created a sensation with Silent Spring, DDT wasn't actually banned until a decade later. And it took Mm -hmm. 10 years of really hard work by grassroots activists, a whole bunch of lawsuits um, for people to convince the Environmental Protection Agency to ban the use of, more or less ban the use of DDT. And after that happened, raptor populations and bird populations that have been impacted by DDT almost immediately started to recover. <laughs> Again, <laughs> history is repeating itself. I don't know if, if people in the know reading some of the news and, and uh, 
uh, there's a company out there that that's I, I'll just leave it at that that its products are believed to be devastating insect populations, bee populations, and mm-hmm. we'll see where that story goes. But you're right, there's so much politics weaved into all of this. That's what's frustrating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's like the, corporate interests and everything. Yeah, yeah, these battles take a long time. Um, and I mean, I hope that's one of the values of of history and of looking back at history to say, wow, we it took us a long time to prove that that chemical <laughs> uh, was right. doing a ton of damage and not only to prove it, but then to stop its use. Um, perhaps we can stop doing that. Perhaps we can test things a little bit better the next time. Um you know, we, we don't, as a species, don't show a huge capacity for learning from our mistakes. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, looking back mm-hmm. at them is something that we do need to do. Right. Yeah. Well, a couple other people I, I touch base in the book or, or touch about in the book is, uh, and I'm, I want to make sure I'm saying his name right, Michael Soule? Yeah, Michael right? Soule. Yeah. Society for Conservation Biology. Mm-hmm. What was his contribution? Yeah, well, he founded the, the Society for Conservation Biology. There's, as... As you know, there's a, a long and I think um, very understandable tradition of scientists trying to stay out of politics <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, both for the sake of their own reputations as objective observers and um, and then for just for their own ability to to see things clearly. Um, but Michael Soule was trained as an ecologist and and he said, you know, that's all fine and good, but we need to be asking questions that are relevant to conservation. We need to be more deliberate in uh, in serving the cause of conservation. And we can still do objective science or as objective as it's possible for a human being to do, but we can mm-hmm. we can declare that we have certain values, for instance, extinction, uh, untimely extinction is a bad thing. Uh, Biodiversity is a good thing. And we can Mm -hmm. ask questions that we think will lead to answers that help advance our values. No, yeah, it's a great human being and, and stuff that he did. And then finally, I loved this one too. Garrett Owen Smith, mm-hmm. you know, in Africa, I think this is where we're going in conservation. But if you can just like give a brief synopsis on his story. Sure, of course. Um, Garrett Owen Smith, and I should say both Garrett o- Owen Smith and Michael Soule uh, died in while I was researching this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Soule mm-hmm. was was actually my neighbor for years in Colorado. And oh, wow. and Garrett Owen Smith, I, I got to meet uh, briefly uh, in the last year of his life. Uh-huh. Uh, in Namibia, and and they, I think, would have passionately disagreed on several things, but would have agreed on many things. And I, I feel that there was the world missed an opportunity <laughs> in not <Yeah>. in <laughs> fate missed an opportunity in not getting Garrett Owen Smith and and Michael Soule around together around a campfire to uh, yeah. have it out. Or so somebody's... yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, anyway, Garrett Owen Smith was a a. South African um, kind of self-trained uh, conservationist. He he went to Namibia as a young man. Uh, he was a white South African. Went to Namibia when it it was a uh, basically a, a territory of South Africa, and he fell in love with the desert, with the people of the desert, with the landscape, with the animals, and and he just 
did everything he could to stick around <laughs> and and to try and build a better future for mm-hmm. this region that he truly loved with all his heart. And he he was a pioneer in what's now called community-led conservation. He and his partner, Margaret Jacobson, helped support communities in uh in reestablishing their conservation authority is one way to put it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. animals had been managed, uh, you know, since the days of colonial uh, governments, as I mentioned earlier with Julian Huxley, animals had mostly been managed by national governments or state governments. And, um, and the power of people on the ground to manage the species they lived alongside had really been taken away. And mm-hmm. Garrett Owen Smith was was one of many conservationists who recognized that this was not only unethical but but wasn't good for wildlife. I mean, it, it kind of broke the connection between people and their neighboring species, and there was a, a sort of prevailing attitude that well, these species are just pests. We don't have a lot of feeling of responsibility toward them, and um, and so in the interest of of restoring that power and and those connections, he. Uh, established a system of community game guards who who helped to ward off poachers and and from that community game guard program helped grow a system of community conservancies that are now uh, it is now a national system of conservancies that has been in place for almost 30 years uh, it is uh, supported by the national government and each conservancy in the system uh, elects its own leaders and they make decisions on the ground about how many of each species are going to be hunted that season, how many uh, game guards are going to be appointed, all those kinds of things. And and I was able to attend um, some meetings, some conservancy meetings, and I found them really exhilarating because even though they were chaotic and messy as as conservation issues always are, <laughs> yes, they yes, yes, yes. they were uh, you know they these were meetings of people who had so few resources and were under so much strain from drought and and any number of pressures, but they had taken the time to get together and and think about the long term future of their neighboring species, and they they took that responsibility very seriously. And uh, one meeting I attended, people had had voluntarily left one of their previous hunting quotas unfilled because they they recognized that the pressure of the drought would likely uh, make it so that that particular species couldn't sustain as much hunting as they had previously thought. Mm-hmm. So they, they mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's led to really tangible uh, successes in growth of, for instance, the black rhino population in northern Namibia. And I do, mm-hmm. as you say, I do think that that's a big part of where conservation should be going. It's, it's, it's the way, I think, to broaden the movement because conservation is still is still to some extent a special interest and it, it should be something mm-hmm. that everybody's practicing and and I see community led conservation as as one way to start to make that happen. No, it, it that's such a great point. It it absolutely conservation begins at home, mm-hmm. you know, especially to all of our listeners from around the world. You know, we always love Africa or mm-hmm. Australia outback or, you know, I'm here in New Zealand. It's it's an exotic location where, where people want to go. But, you know, back home in California or Florida, you know, where, where Angie lives, my partner, you know, conservation starts in our backyards. Mm-hmm. 
it's like, and it's local. That is where it's, it's critical. So it's, yeah, we can keep an eye to the Amazon mm-hmm. and hopefully put political pressure on Brazil to stop destroying it. But it still goes with, with, I think our individual, individual uh, choices and how we live our lives. So I loved his story too. Cause I was like, yes, that is like how you tied up the book. So I guess that leads me to a couple more questions. Before, before I let you go, because this is a fascinating mm-hmm. talk. Through your research, you know, going back to William Hornaday to a Garrett Owen Smith, how has conservation changed in the last hundred years? Hmm. Um, a couple of big ways. It, I think the science of ecology, which it grew up alongside, has given conservationists a sense that they are not only protecting individual species from extinction, but that they are protecting relationships among species and relationships between species and habitats and relationships between humans and, and other species. That that last one is the I think the last one to be realized. But I think mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. people realize that that the the job is about protecting relationships. And I think that people have Thanks to conservation biology, we now have a pretty good sense, though there's, of course, tons of uncertainties, but we have a pretty good sense of what other species need. Uh, You know, we can say with quite a bit of sophistication how much space, how many, how much um, of other kinds of resources species need to survive for the long term. Uh, But what we don't know as much about is how to enable humans to play a constructive role in conservation. And, and a lot of that is, a lot of those questions are answered by social science, which I think conservationists are belatedly realizing the importance of and, and increasingly turning to for advice. Uh, so I think that the strategy has gone from the classic parks and reserves model, which, I mean, because of the damage we've done to habitats around the world, we are, mm-hmm. we do still need parks and reserves. But as I said earlier, we're in much more need of models that help people reduce the short-term costs of conservation, of which there always, almost always are some, <laughs> and increase the benefits that they're getting directly from long-term conservation. And once those benefits and burdens are more equitably distributed, I think what that reveals is that people mostly are willing to protect their neighboring species. They don't want to see them go extinct, as annoyed as they might be (laughs) by the elephant in the backyard or as frustrated as they might be by what they see as an invasive government or agency mm-hmm. getting in their business once if if we could give everyone a truth serum and ask them do you really want that species you're complaining about to go extinct forever and do you want to have a hand in that i think most people would say no right yeah no it's true it's true well uh, michelle awesome uh, thank you so much for for coming on the book again beloved beasts fighting for life in an age of extinction I mean, I obviously assume Amazon, anywhere else people can find it? They can find it on Bookshop. And uh, if they want more information about the book or who I am or what I do, they can go to my website. And uh, because my last name is complicated, I have a URL redirect that they can use. And it is rhymeswithmyhouse.com. So rhymeswithmyhouse.com. And that will take them there. (laughs) 
Yes, yes. And I'll I'll have the links in the show notes too. But thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for writing this book, doing all the research. It is a very enjoyable read. Again, to our listeners, if you have an interest, especially in a career in conservation, I would put this on a must-read list. It, it's just a fascinating history uh, leading up to where we are today on conservation. But thank you so much. Thank you. It's really a delight to talk to you, Chris. Take care. <laughs>